Hi, I'm Dan Cottrell, editor of Rugby Coach Weekly. You're about to jump into one of our podcasts. If you want to find out more about this podcast and also all of the great content, drills, activities, games and advice on the website, then go over to www.rugbycoachweekly.net. I hope you enjoy the podcast. And children from as young as six, seven, eight will begin to learn to analyze each other's skills and also come back to you with ideas. You know, they'll say things like, oh, well, they weren't looking at me. All right, good. So that's a really good point, isn't it? We all need to look at each other and make sure that we look at each other when we are receiving a ball. Be the best rugby coach you can be. Welcome to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with head coach Dan Cottrell, where you learn hints and tips from the rugby coaching community. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with me, Dan Cottrell. I'm delighted to uh, welcome onto the podcast, Rachel Jefferson. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel. Hi there, Dan. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, it's uh, it's not... Uh, just Rachel Jefferson is Dr. Rachel Jefferson. Uh, she's lecturer in human movement studies and creative arts at the School of Education, Charles Stewart University, New South Wales, Australia. Um, but she's not just done that. She's um, a bit more travelled than that, um, uh, different parts of the world. So just give us a quick um, introduction to where you've been and how you've got to where you are. Oh, well, everyone thinks I'm Australian when they see that I'm working in Australia, but I am actually not. And you can tell by my accent that I'm not. I'm originally from the UK, um, trained at Chelsea School of Human Movement in Eastbourne. And then two years after I kind of started working in Essex in Basildon, I gave up uh, the thought of working in England for a while because it was sort of national curriculum time. And I'd had enough already of their new ideas, which were terribly restrictive and didn't value physical education at all. Right, so, so when I say I didn't went... value, let's go back to that. It, that's yeah. quite a big move to make. <laughs> didn't they didn't value physical education. They, they didn't value it because we became this foundation subject as opposed to a core subject. Um, and so basically, you know, we were relegated to the bottom of the pile in the late 1980s, um, early 1990s. So I said, oh, I'm not having this. And I was passionate about my subject. So I decided to go abroad and, and try something over there and see if I could have more autonomy, more flexibility. Um, and so I ended up in the International School of Geneva and I loved it there um, and stayed there for 13 years all in all and um, had a huge influence on the PE curriculum there, started up a, a GCSE um, performing arts dance course there as well, because I'm trained in both dance and um, phys ed. And then I came back to England for family reasons. Um, and I worked as a lecturer at Bath Spa University, where I, um, I really loved Bath and Bristol and all of that area. And I had family who were quite local as well. So that was great. And there I taught in the performing arts dance um, undergraduate. And I also focused a lot. Um, a lot of my work was based with um, early years and primary years, uh, physical education generalists. So I was kind of doing these introductions to physical education and um, dance for pr uh, primary and early years postgraduate students. And then I was there for about nine years all in all. And then 
10, 11 years ago, I kind of got a bit fed up with that too. And um, and uh, put on my little um, nomadic feet again and ended up out here in Australia. And um, here I teach um, creative arts, primarily creative arts actually at the moment. So, you know, dance, music, drama, uh, media arts and visual arts. And I also have lectured for quite some time in health, uh, well-being and physical education subjects. And that's on masters of teaching programs and undergraduate programs as well. OK, I'm going to start with a really Philistine type question. Um, creative arts. Yeah. Um, so let's say I'm I'm teaching or uh, a dance routine. Um, so the the dancers are going through the routine that I've set out. Where are they creative? Well, first of all, we don't call it routine in education. All right. Okay. We well, number one, <laughs> <laughs> we call it we call it a sequence. Right, okay. Um, and oh, a sequence. And okay. Yeah, and these kinds of linguistic, you know, the terminology that we use is very important uh, because, you know, what we what we hear and see a lot of, for example, with routines is that there's this formulaic approach to teaching dance, um, which I am very much against. And I haven't been trained that way either. So I've gone through the private school in dance system myself. Um, but I had a very, very progressive teacher who gave us a lot of choreographic time. And we were able to develop our own creativity alongside taking the exams that we did in ballet and jazz and contemporary and so on. So when I did my training in uh, physical education with dance as a specialism, then I was able to extend that further. So in the school context, um, it doesn't happen as often as it should, but we should have this sort of three three focal focal points really in dance education this is in western dance frameworks mm. um so we would have performance skills but we would also have composition or choreographic skills which is where your creativity comes in to play and then we'd have analysis and appreciation skills so what are, what give me an example of a performance skill then um well if if, for example, I used to when I used to teach in Switzerland, um, we would uh, well, I would work with the students on specific set studies, for example. So it might be that the study involved some kinds of contemporary dance techniques, uh, such as um, contraction, release, certain types of leaps. Um, you okay, know, so, can I, so can I just go back to leaps then? Uh, <laughs> I, I can I can sort of imagine a leap. How do you teach somebody who hasn't leapt before to leap now? And how do you know when they've cracked it so they can do it every time? Or not every time. Maybe that's the wrong terminology as well. Well, if we're going back to basics, um, I would say that most teenagers that I used to work with in the international school would have already experienced some form of jumping or leaping or both um, from a very early age. It is actually, um, you know, the type of skill that is often caught and not taught in the sense that they'll go out and jump off things. They'll, you know, they'll climb up on walls and they'll leap off with one foot and land on two you know, um, so so basically those kinds of skills, you know, we, we often talk about the expression jumping for joy, 
children are very, very embodied. And so, you know, when they're excited, when they're happy and, you know, you'll hear them whoop, but you'll also feel and see them actually jumping for joy, running around the room excitedly, et cetera, et cetera. So these kinds of skills that we we refine in later life with our teenagers in a dance context or a physical education context. These are skills that have already been tried out by students at an earlier age. As I mean, I again forgive my misinterpreted the, the terminology. So some of these are like primary skills, things that you do naturally um, without anyone having to tell you what to do, and then you're then going to take that and do something with it to find a performance outcome yeah for sure i mean there's different names for um skills one of the most accepted one um is fundamental movement skills um but there is quite a big push at the moment in the research that that i've been reading to kind of change the word fundamental to make it more what they call foundation skills so foundational movement skills so there's quite a push for that only because uh fundamental implies that these are the only skills that um students should learn and what we know from the research is that um those types of skills those fundamental movement skills are often very very uh sport framed uh, so they're underpinned by these very very strong sport discourses so you know, we have um, skills such as um, catching, throwing, um, uh, running, all of those types of skills that will go into the average kind of um, game category that we, that we have. So, so that's where there's a bit of contentious stuff going on and debate at the moment. So who's come up with uh, what these foundational skills should be? Is there is there a sort of like a, a long list and these are the ones that we need to um, make sure that they, the, the children are doing uh, or we're, that we're, they're giving more chance to do them? What what has decided these are the, are the ones? Well, that's a good question because, um, you know, it varies in different countries. And as a person who's lived and worked in different countries, there are all sorts of really, really, you know, a lot of problems and a lot of debate that could be, you know, brought out into the fore, as it were, because, you know, whose values are being placed, you know, as to, you know, who's going to say that this skill is more important than this skill. Uh, for example, I worked uh, quite a lot with um, a karate um, uh, club uh, in, um, in Australia. And, you know, a lot of the skills that I was talking about that were fundamental skills were not even involved in the skills that they were learning as karate students so obviously we have sport specific skills as well as these uh, fundamental movement skills but the problem is that everyone has different opinions as to what should be included or could be included and that does vary internationally and and I'm okay with that I think that it it doesn't really matter on the level of um you know we need to have different voices but I also think that that can create a, a feeling of overwhelm with some of the teachers that I work with and some of the student teachers that I work with, 
who say, well, you know, well, which ones should I be teaching and by mm. when, you know, um, should I be doing the overhand throw by the age of seven or should it be the balance on one foot or, you know, so there's like a sort of pecking order for skills that, that becomes quite difficult to manage for not, particularly for non-specialists. I think that's quite scary actually for, um, say, a coach who's maybe picking up an under 14 team. And uh, I mean, I talk about all sport across sports now, and they they know. Oh, I need to do foundational, fundamental skills. Mm. Where do I start? What what are they done already? Uh, are, are they missing out on ones? If they can't achieve a level a certain level with this, what what do I do next? I mean, is it is it? Do we need to? How much do we need to worry about it? I suppose is the is the first question. I'm not so concerned about um, what's right or wrong, because I think that that is very contextually specific. And I think that if you've got a broad understanding of what fundamental movement skills are, that you can then adapt those for your specific physical activity or and or sport that you're doing. However, you do need to have a broad understanding of what they are generally known to be to be able to then tweak it, develop it, modify it, extend it, et cetera, et cetera. So generally we talk about um, three fundamental movement skills categories. We talk about body management skills, for example, balance on one foot, or we might talk about climbing. That's a body management skill. Of course, it also goes somewhere. So some would say, oh, well, that's a locomotor skill. But we have to have some kind of category to begin to identify some of these fundamental movement skills. So again, those are research-based. They've been kind of tried and tested in various different countries. So body management skills would be category one. Category two, most researchers would talk about locomotor skills. So that is a skill that actually takes us from one place to another. And of course we have that in all um, uh, sports. So someone did once say to me, no, that's not true, Rachel. What about windsurfing? And I'm like, all right, okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> so but they are moving a little bit on the board, you know, yeah. uh, and, and the boat or the, or the board is taking them somewhere. Uh, but, you know, generally speaking, in some kind of sport or physical activity, you are traveling somewhere, um, certainly in games and traditional um, games such as you know rugby football etc you are traveling somewhere with an object so um tra uh, travel or locomotor skills some people call them locomotion skills uh, that might consist of running um skipping galloping hopping all of those kinds of basic skills and then the third category which i've already alluded to is the object management skills or the object manipulation skills they do have different names and and when you look at the research the different um skills that go into those different categories do vary slightly but i don't i don't have a problem with that i think you know as long as we've got a broad consensus on what those might comprise then i think we can work with that when a coach is now listening into this and they are thinking, well, they they sound well. They sound, when they say I say they sound obvious. As soon as you talk about them, we we know them. We can picture them. Yeah, they're not necessarily yeah. thinking about them when they are designing their uh, training uh, sessions or their training block of block of work. Is that is that something they're really missing out on, or is it just 
you know, if you happen to know, then that's a bonus. Or am I being um, dismissing them too much? We, do we need to focus more on them? That's what I'm trying to get to, I suppose. Okay, well, I mean, the, the research, because I always have to work from an evidence base as a researcher. Mm. Um, so the research tells us that most children, you know, generally should be proficient in fundamental movement skills by about the age of eight or nine. That is not the case, though. Um, you, I mean, there are lots of adults who don't have certain skills in place. For example, the overhand throw is the most complex skill that you could ever teach or learn. And I'm sure you, you, you know, ask anybody in the street to throw a tennis ball uh, as far as they can. And you're going to see all sorts of uh, competence levels with that. Whereas catching, you know, that's very much easier. Um, you can vary the object. You can have a bigger object to catch and it will be easier for the person, et cetera, et cetera. So um, the key thing that I always work with when I work with teachers, and I've also worked with um, coaches, and lecturers as well in fundamental movement skills, is not to stress on the level of, um, I must get this, you know, this particular fundamental movement skill taught by the end of six weeks and um, test it and then uh, move on to the next. There's a kind of um, a checklist mentality that can be really damaging because there are so many variables to learning fundamental movement skills. So, for example, during puberty, um, children's bodies just change so much that they could have had really good dynamic balance or static balance prior to that. But because, you know, particularly girls will have, um, you know, weight um, development, they'll be developing breasts and hips and everything else. So it can actually throw children's uh, balance out. And that's also where you see quite a lot of um, changes and differences between boys and girls with, for example, you know, the hip um width and also the musculature and the sh shoulders and so on so um overhand throw is a fascinating one to track across time that you you know you get a very similar boy girl um similarities with the proficiency of that skill and then what happens is when it comes to teenagers that can shift because of those physiological differences that occur um post puberty so so in terms of um, tracking fundamental movement skills or honing them and uh, fine tuning them, I think we just need to be aware as uh, coaches and teachers that they will vary across time and that we can actually modify what we teach, how we teach and bring in moments, very important moments where we're specifically focusing on certain types of criteria. For example, sorry, 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 I mean, uh, when you say bring in moments. Yes. What, what... During play. So, right. for example, you know, the, one of the best models that we have, and I speak very much from this, you know, my in my book, um, it's all about play-based pedagogy with fundamental movement skills. In my research since that, all my articles talk about play as pedagogy. So what we found is that when you have these very didactic moments of everybody lines up and does the overhand throw and you all need to throw it like this, then that is not the best, the most fertile ground for developing that particular throw because you'll know as well as I do, I remember doing this in my basketball lessons, you know, you teach them how to do the perfect hand dribble 
off mm. they go, you know, they're practicing it and they're, they're getting a nice soft flexibility with their fingers and they're bending their knees and they're doing this lovely kind of transference of weight. They've got it all perfectly ticked and you go, wow, they're ready to go back into the game. They go back into the game and it all just flies out the window. <laughs> and you see them all just banging the ball, slapping the ball. Mm. Um, they're in, they're doing panic passes, um, you know, and that's because of the pressure of the game so competition and things like that will affect the game so what i suggest when i work with um, teachers and coaches and so on is that you you have this the fertile ground for developing fundamental movement skills is actually within a game itself and it does not have to be competitive so you can have very collaborative games you know things like um uh tag rugby and things like that they're great little um possibilities learning activities where children are playing with one another and learning how to pass and throw and dodge and run and do all of those things and all you've got to do occasionally is just stop the game uh, or the activity and just say okay right so so there were I watched your game and there were at least you know three three passes that weren't successful um talk to me now about how we can improve our passes you know and just open up that discussion and children from as young as six seven eight will begin to learn to analyze each other's skills and also come back to you with ideas you know they'll say things like oh well they weren't looking at me all right good so that's a really good point isn't it we all need to look at each other and make sure that we look at each other when we are receiving a ball you know so it's that kind of play-based open-ended and co-construction of uh, skill refinement that is very, very successful. Okay, so let's get there. talk about that games idea then. Uh, let's say uh, we go back to say basketball and you've got, um, or basketball, netball, you've got the chess pass. Bef when they, uh, let's say we're trying to introduce it to a, a new group uh, or uh, players who've not played much before, what would be your sort of steps to sort of help them through using the the style, uh, the fertile ground? Well, I think some of the best ways, which I've found over the years, is that you, you just have a very simple passing game. And you, as the teacher, would, um, I always say, take your mental cup of tea and step right back and out of the activity and use it as an observation um, possibility. When you ask children to start passing a ball around, then you get a very quick feel of what their catching and passing skills are like. And then at that particular point in time, you can you can stop the game and say, all right, okay, so we did three passes there in a row. That was fantastic. What were some, you know, what were some of the best things that you did when you catch a ball? Um, what do we need to remember to do when we're catching a ball? And they'll come back at you with things like oh I have to bring the ball to my chest you know and things like that they, they're very good young children are very articulate about what they what they kind of feel their body doing and if they're not you can always nudge them and and say all right so when you caught the ball what did you do with it and they'll say oh I brought it into my tummy yes okay all right so let's all try and do that and that will help you to, to protect the ball from other people getting it, won't it? Off you go, let's try it again. Very simple little fine-tuning skills. Um, skill criteria like that are incredibly effective 
And also don't forget that we can overload children. And so, you know, when we give them three, four, five different skill criteria, we say, oh, this is how we do a chest pass. You have to stand on your back foot. You have to walk, uh, step forward into the throw. And don't forget to follow through with your fingers to the ball. And already overload. Yeah, cognitive overload. They've switched off. So just dropping in very simple auditory cues, giving them obviously visual cues with that demonstration. I always say actions speak louder than words. Mm. So talk them through, give them that sort of multi-sensory possibility, action plus verbal, and you're already, you know, hitting two different senses there. Right. So um, I'm going to go and just change the angle completely on where we're going. And but still talking about um, we're, we're with a group of children and there's someone who you just can't catch. And I've used the word they're uncoordinated. But first of all, is that a fair term to use? And secondly, if they aren't what we might used to say uncoordinated, what can we do to help them become more coordinated? Is that possible? Yeah, I don't really like, I mean, my second subject is special ed. So um, I don't really like the term uncoordinated because right, okay. I think it's a, it's a terrible label and that children will quickly switch on to it and then it will be like this self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. So um, I often talk about inefficient um, movement skills and proficient movement skills, uh, but I wouldn't share that with children. Right. So what I, you know, that that's kind of like a scientific term for fundamental movement skills. And people talk about proficiency and inefficiency. Um, so I always, always talk and I even do it now with adults, you know, and I and I and I teach them to use, you know, this non-deficit language because we we quickly as human beings, we're very vulnerable and sensitive beings, aren't we? Mm. And we very quickly learn that we're not good at something. We very quickly learn that we, you know, with that learning of I'm not good at something, then comes the reduction in motivation. And then it becomes this vicious cycle of then not being active. So we want to uh, nip that in the bud. And the way that I've done it very successfully using the kind of language that I have over the years is just to talk about, you know, areas for improvement. It just flips it a little bit rather than saying, you know, things you're not good at. Or some people use weaknesses, which is a dreadful term. And I'm like, don't use the word weaknesses, please. Um, because then we're all going to go around and say, I'm weak at this, I'm weak at that. You know, talk about areas for improvement. And and there's that, you know, whether you can call it a growth mindset or you can just call it quality teaching, coaching, whatever. But it is about enabling the, the child to actually see that, that every human being has areas for improvement. Everybody. We can all improve on something, can't we? And that's that's not to make us turn us into strivers. It's to actually say that, you know, human beings have areas to improve, whether that's a, on a social basis, physical basis, a cognitive basis, whatever. So that kind of language is really important. Now, if I were working with a child who couldn't catch then I would go right back to basics with them. Often with catching, we've got issues with tracking 
a particular object or we've got issues with timing. That is particularly the case with children who have any kind of de developmental coordination disorder or DCD for short, um, particularly problematic because they uh, fail to track the ball. They lose sight of when it's coming to them. And so what happens is that that then will affect the timing of their hand closure around the ball. So, so it could be a visual disability. It could be a lack of practice. It could be, you know, there's so many different variables as to why they're struggling with the tracking and the timing of a catch. So we have to get to the bottom of that and we have to actually try and work out why. And some of the easiest ways to start kind of scaffolding the learning of a catch would be, for example, working with uh, objects that are slower than a ball, uh, because we do have a lot of fear, especially young children. Um, they will literally, you know, receive a ball and throw it over their shoulder because they're scared of the ball going into their face. Yeah, yeah. we see a lot of that kind of, you know, gestural movement behind them. Um, so slowing down the ball can be a really easy way. Um, and it doesn't have to be a ball either. I've used um, chiffon scarves very successfully, um, balloons. Um, all of those are types of softer objects that are slower moving in the air will give children an opportunity to be successful. Um, and I've seen some of the most um, Children with the most learning disabilities be very successful with balloons and scarves, ribbons, et cetera, et cetera. As soon as they get that success, it's like there's a light bulb going on in their heads and they go, I can do this. And there's this shift and they start to actually begin then to be able to transfer that tracking ability and the timing of the hands, the closure around the object into more difficult objects, smaller objects, faster objects, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I mean, uh, lots of coaches will be listening in and saying this is going to make a, a difference because I think certainly if you're coaching younger players, um, catching is one, of the, is one of the issues. And anyone who's been involved with coaching uh, <laughs> women's rugby where they're coming into rugby for the first time, the catch and pass is, is, a, is a challenge early on and yeah. trying to help these players move on effectively can be can be difficult so i'm thinking then that um uh, I'm, I'm working out in my mind how long you need to be doing these sorts of things i know obviously it's very contextual and uh, lots of people right. will, uh, kids will move on at different sorts of stages it's not like you do right we're going to do balloons week one and the ball week two and because uh, we've done balloons week one we should have been right with the ball week two it's a uh, it's a much more gradual process i'm assuming Absolutely. Um, and and also, you know, it can work for your gifted and talented athletes as well. So uh, I remember going to a workshop years ago now with the um, the New Zealand netball team and um, they were playing around with those squeaky chickens um, and they were, they you know, they were throwing them around to each other in a circle. I remember just laughing my head off watching this, you know, elite team working with these um rubber chickens squeaky chickens and I, I remember saying to them why are you using those squeaky chickens like i would have thought you'd have been 
you know, warming up and doing the most important things with the ball. And they said, no, no, because, you know, we're all very, very good at catching. But actually what this different object does for us, it enables us to catch in very strange ways. So we might catch the head of the chicken. We might catch the feet of the chicken or the middle of the chicken. And it takes the emphasis away from the skill of catching. Um, it kind of like makes us laugh. So there you go. Fun is the most important thing. But also it brings us together as a group because we're all laughing and there's this social um, connection that we have through this different object that we're actually playing with. So it's not time wasted. It's actually building team spirit. It's building laughter. It's building fun around skills that could be quite didactic and or boring for your more gifted players. And coming back to the, um, you know, how much, how often question, which, as you said, is very, very contextual. I would say that choice in my work that I've done over the years, choice is always the most important thing. So um, I used to, you know, if you if you start grouping children and say, all right, you're level one, you're level two, you're level three, you're going to work with balloons today. You're going to work with a bigger ball and you're going to work with the best ball. Children will immediately say, right, okay, so I'm level three, which is balloons. So I must be really, really bad at catching because she's put me in that group. And I'm level two um, and I'm using a bigger ball. So I'm kind of average at catching. And again, it's morale. It's um, issues with motivation, which will have a very negative impact on future skill proficiency. And then the top group, you know, whoa, I'm the best. I've got the, the correct object. I'm playing adult type games with this adult type um, object. So choice works really, really well. Um, stations as well, where you can actually, you know, put the balls into a station and everyone rotates around that or balloons or ribbons or, you know, whatever it is that you that you want them to experience. And then, as I say, stand back, have your mental cup of tea, watch what goes on. You can learn so much. And some of your best players who are really used to working with a ball will actually be challenged by working with a balloon or a squeaky chicken or whatever it is. And so everybody's getting more versatile. Everybody's getting more variety in terms of the objects that they play with. And we know that... Um, you know, with early specialization techniques, most of the research is saying that up until about the age of 12, that students should have this type of um, teaching and coaching because it enables them to become these sort of multi-sport um, players as opposed to specializing too early, going too fully into adult type games, leading to possible injury, possible burnout, mental health problems, etc. So the majority of the research suggests 12 upwards that you start sort of focusing on more specialized objects and, uh, well, specialized games, but with that would come the objects. So, um, in, in terms of that, so that, um, that's fascinating in terms of uh, creating a, um, a three-station thing where everyone has a go at it it's not in a sense you're not differentiating which is a no. which is a separate topic altogether which um, we, we could explore another time but not not now but now i'm now thinking about um a training session that you're you're setting out uh, and it could be any any sport and 
you've got to have in your back of your mind that we need to be developing not just the the game skills that are tactical and technical for this game. Uh, we also need to be looking at their foundation fundamental skills. Is there, is there a way of sort of um, picturing that in your mind that you've got to dedicate some time to it or you've just got to, when you're having your mental cup of tea, saying, yeah, it's fine. We're, we're doing some of the, I'm looking down my list, we're doing some of the bonding management, we're doing some of the locomotive, we're doing some of the object management we're all right because what i'm scared about is that over um a six ten week block we have covered 50 percent or 60 percent of those skills and the other 40 percent just get ignored because they don't pop up in our sport enough or we don't give enough time to them how, how do we that's a bit of a um ramble to how, how do we make sure that we are covering as many of them as we should i think if you if you do um want to go down the route of sort of you know a checklist and, and making sure that you've got balance mm. in terms of you know body management locomotor and object control skills um over a period of time then you'd have to be quite strategic about it and you'd have to actually pull out some of those skills look at some of the um, the listings that we have, which are recognized, which are some of the things that I said to you, you know, object control skills, uh, working with different objects, et cetera, catching, passing, throwing, et cetera, et cetera. So um, pulling out some of those, what's specific to the physical activity or sport that I want to do, making a list um, and just um, checking that when you design your teaching or coaching plan, that you are specifically focusing on one or two of those skills on a regular basis in that plan and then see how you go. One of the best ways to do this is obviously using digital technology. Um, you could obviously um, video some of the activities that you set up because we can't remember everything, can we, when we're working with um, children. So it's, it's really impossible to uh, you know we're skilled observers but we still can't remember it so digital analysis of um and, th and this is really really educative for particularly you know as we move into youth as well they they can really effectively start to break down their own progression in skills um and we can scaffold that from an earlier age but particularly when we move into sort of 11 plus We've got far more critical thinking abilities developing in their, you know, their cognitive development and so on. So, well, and they really love it. They really love it. So they'll get in there and they'll just, you know, if you say, all right, I want you, want you to watch um, Jackie, Robbie and, you know, and so on. And I want you to um, just uh, video them for five minutes. And then at the end, we're going to talk about their catching skills and their passing skills. And we're looking at them as individuals. So they can be your teacher's aide, your coach aide. And you can actually bring in the children um, in that sense to help you. So you are, I would say, this is more of a holistic approach. It's a, it's an educational approach as opposed to a skill drill coaching, conventional coaching approach. It's about looking at the whole child. We're not just looking at fundamental movement skills. We're looking at their, you know, their social development, their cooperation, um, how well they pass to others team play fair play um all of that comes into it but 
getting them on board to, to be your, you know, your coaching buddies, your teaching buddies is a really effective way to to get more observers out there and seeing what's going on. We talked a lot about children. A 19-year-old uh, comes to a, a class or a training session. Have they had their day to get their foundational skills? Can we can we help them become better? Absolutely. I myself have actually improved my overhand throw amazingly. <laughs> I mean, javelin was never my sport because, of course, the javelin is the same overhand throw. Yeah, it's a pool throw. So we have different types of throws. Yeah. So, you know, the shot put is, is a push throw. But the javelin and the overhand throw is a pulling throw. So I was never taught how to do the javelin. You know, it was a very gung-ho, you know, throw the girls out on the sports uh, field. And I was really good at athletics. I absolutely love athletics. I'm crazy about athletics. I'm a coach in athletics. Um, however, I very rarely demonstrated the javelin because it was my avoidance one, because I was really good at shot, really good at discus, but javelin, no. And it was a biomechanical fault that I had learned very poorly at school. In other words, I'd just done it through play and never got any refinement of it. And by focusing and learning more about fundamental movement skills myself, in my 30s, I started you know, learning a lot more about how, you know, the rotation of the body. And what I realized was that I was blocking myself with my overhand throw. And I was actually rotating my hip before my, before my, uh, sorry, other way around, rotating my shoulder before my hip. So that was a biomechanical fault that I had learned. When I learned that you had to have this beautiful organic, you know, um, rotation of the hip then the shoulder then I was like oh wow that totally frees my shoulder I'm not no longer blocking myself and I was like whoa you know and I had a friend at university who was uh throwing javelin 50 plus meters she was a county javelin thrower and I always just say how do you do that you know and and what I'm saying is there's always room for development it could be something as small as that. In other words, you know, you're you're blocking yourself in your biomechanical efficiency. And what you're doing is rotating your shoulder before your hip. And suddenly, boom, you know, there's an immediate improvement. So I'm very interested in how you got to that, uh, went through that journey, because did someone tell you? Did you look at it and work it out? How did you practice it? I mean, uh, obviously, we we use play as one way, play and refinement, if, refinement. But it sounds like the play gave you, in this particular case, gave you some habits which you needed to break off. And you didn't have a coach who'd said, just a second, Rachel, just come here a second. Uh, you need to uh, do hip, shoulder. What, 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 what can we learn as coaches to help our players, given your javelin journey? javelin journey <laughs> I haven't really thought about that for a long time but um well I think um obviously play is all well and good but as I've always said within that pedagogy that the teacher and the coach always have a role mm. so um they must observe they must draw out they must refine they must put back 
And that's the key thing is that we can very quickly learn bad habits. This can lead to all sorts of injuries later on and also very ineffective skills. I mean, there are always anomalies. People always turn around to me in the courses that I used to run in FMS in in England for coaches and they'd say, oh, yeah, but what about Michael Johnson, you know, or <laughs> some other famous athlete who did things completely differently from other athletes? Yeah. So I always used to turn around and say, all right, so we know that he's got quite a stiff upper torso when he's running and we know that, you know, he's got his um fists clenched or there's some other kind of technical thing that's going on that is impeding but yes he still won you know I don't know how many it was mm. but you know several gold medals etc etc just think if he'd had coaching and fine tuning 10 years prior how much faster he would have been he was already a gold medal sprinter but if he'd been picked up at that earlier age and just been given a couple of little tips whereby, you know, they worked with him on that, then that could have made a big difference. It's all hypothetical, of course. But we shouldn't be looking at the anomalies. What we should be doing is looking at what is a proficient skill? What are the skill criteria for it? Biomechanically, there are many skills that we can just Google um, and pick up specific skill criteria. Um, and certainly I worked with a Western Australian um, program with uh, teachers for a long, long time. And there they were written out, you know, there was an observation chart and you had skill criteria for beginning um, students. You had skill criteria for developing students. You had skill criteria for consolidating students. And then you had skill criteria for generalizing students. So there were these levels of differentiation with the skill criteria. So with a beginner catcher, you would always say, keep your eyes focused on the ball. That would be for a beginner. Whereas with more advanced, you know, children who were consolidating or generalizing their skills and, and practicing it in different contexts, that's what we mean by generalizing, um, you know, they would be looking more at... Um, being able to move so they could actually you know move when they catch they can catch the ball on a low level a higher level and they're actually bringing the ball into the um chest area and they're adapting to the different types of catches that there are so i think um that's something that we 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 need to become very knowledgeable of those kinds of skill criteria and be able to you know I, I mean, I can do it in my sleep because I've been teaching them for years, but um, other coaches need to go and do a little bit of homework and, uh, you know, perhaps go and look up some biomechanical um, skill development criteria and just start to keep those, you know, on a little post-it or written into their notes on their phone or whatever, just as uh, reminders, auditory cues, so that they can start to build those into their practices. Well, Rachel, we could, um, there's, I had about four or five other questions I was going to ask you, and I'm not sure if I even <laughs> started on those, but I, I'm going to, I'm going to stop there because, um, first of all, you've told, uh, coaches to go and do some homework and they'll be delighted by that, that news. Uh, um, <laughs> definitely you're all, all, once a teacher, always a teacher. That's, uh, that's the key. <laughs> um, absolutely. Uh, so anyway, 
Brilliant. That uh, you have got um, some uh, publications and books out there. The the sort of the number one, the go the go to one is the Fundamental Fun One Hundred and Thirty Two Activities to Develop Fundamental Movement Skills, Correct, which is available yeah. on Amazon. Uh, by the um, way, you can buy it. You can. Well, it's cheaper with me actually. Amazon make far too much money. <laughs> uh, if you if you just email me, I can give you um, discount on that. Um, Amazon charges way too much. Um, because they're a global empire, aren't they? Whereas us poor little authors, we <laughs> don't make any profit at all from Amazon sales. <laughs> so just email me. Um, you can catch me on, uh, well, probably the easiest email um, would be my work email. You can usually Google me. I'm either under Rachel Jefferson or Jefferson hyphen Buchanan. Um, and my email is rjefferson, as in President Thomas Jefferson, J-E-F-F-E-R-S-O-N, hyphen Buchanan, B-U-C-H-A-N-A-N, at C-S-U dot E-D-U and dot A-U for Australia. Okay. Well, we'll put that link in the in the show notes, obviously. And, yes, sure. Uh, so that was brilliant. Um, so just to, to wrap up, you've been listening to a Rugby Coach Weekly podcast uh, if you want to find out more about Rugby Coach Weekly podcasts and this podcast, go over to rugbycoachweekly.net. Um, uh, but again, Rachel, this has been absolutely brilliant. Um, I always uh, like to have guests on I'm going to learn from, and I've learned a lot uh, from uh, this one in particular about catching skills. Um, my girls' team won't know what's hit them, literally, <laughs> as I'm throwing balloons, <laughs> ribbons, um, scarves at them in, in, the, in the next session. They may be happy or, or sad, uh, but I'll be certainly be ticking off for all my homework. Anyway, thanks very much for your time. Oh, it's a pleasure. And I think your girls will surprise you. I think you'll hear lots and lots of laughter and there will be masses of learning too. Yeah, well, they will, they'll make a change for them. So anyway, that's brilliant. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening and we'll catch up with you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. If you want to hear more podcasts, head over to RugbyCoachWeekly.net and click on the Blogs tab to catch up on any episodes you've missed. We look forward to speaking to you again soon with more insights from coaches and experts from the world of rugby, sport, and learning.